Good morning, church. How are you? How's everybody doing? Are you glad you came to church today? Amen. You sound convincing. <laughs> that was beautiful. You know, I, uh, I had not actually heard of en- the Endless Song, and I got curious and looked it up. The song that um, the band, we did, did such a beautiful job, uh, played. And I've just been reading the words since this morning. And um, no storm can shake my inmost calm while that refuge clinging. Since Christ the Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? I probably didn't read it just right, but it's a poem, and uh, it was put to that music, so it was beautiful. So the cool thing about being here is um, the different seasons, and I just don't mean the weather, but the different ebb and flow of our church and university life, and we're entering a new season uh, right now in the life of our church, of course, and maybe I'll mention a few of what that means for us um, at the end of our study today. But, um, you know, sometime, because it was graduation, what, last week? And uh, sometime before that, um, I got, I caught the whiff of an intoxicating smell in the hallway of our church. And that smell led me to our our kitchen, a church kitchen uh, downstairs. And it was a family of uh, Andrews University uh, graduate who was about to graduate and she had all her family there, and uh, they were cooking up a storm for a graduation party. And the smell was curry. It was amazing. Now, I've told you about my affinity for um, Indian food. And uh, I blame that on Evangeline, uh, a lady, uh, a friend I had met in uh, Western Canada about 15 years ago, when I lived there for about two years. And I was a brand new uh, pastor with boundless energy, and hopefully that's still the case. And um, so I just arrived in Western Canada, and everybody was very hospitable, by the way. But um, Evangeline in particular stood out because she was like a mama. You know, she sat me down, settled me down, and uh, impressed on me that uh, it was important that as, um, as a minister that I, found, that I have a, a place to call home, to let my hair down. And her place was going to be that place. And like I said, I had a lot of people being very welcoming, but she stands out because she introduced me to uh, panak paneer and uh, mango lassi and naan bread. So she stands out because, and, and, and I've said this before, that love tastes like Indian food. Um, somebody said amen. Uh, with the exception, of course, of Caribbean food. So um, to be welcomed is such a wonderful thing. Um, to be welcomed in a place, you know, it anchors you, it uh, gives you a sense that you belong and things are going to be all right. And um, when we talk about hospitality, it's, it's almost natural to talk, to think, the first thing that comes to your mind, right, to think about good food and good friend. Um, now, my mom uh, made sure to teach us, by example, us girls, uh, we're, we're a household of girls, my sisters and I. Um, to be good hostesses, you know, to receive people, make them feel really important, and to always have the house ready and clean. And when mom would say it was cleaning day, we would kind of moan and say, oh, it already looks kind of clean. It always did. It always looked clean. But she never could clean enough because we needed to make the guests feel like they were VIPs. So she she passed that on to us. So when you think hospitality, you think of of, uh, pulling out the the best china, right? Um, The perfect uh, home, Everything is polished and perfect, right, when you think of hospitality, for the most part. 
However, when we look at hospitality in the Bible and in ancient times, it's everything but perfect and neat. Actually, uh, hospitality, biblical hospitality, uh, seems um, disruptive. It seems even risky, and it's always, always divine. So we have a, we tend to have a distortion of what it means to welcome another. Of course, in that culture, it was everything. It was a moral issue to welcome uh, the stranger within your fold. Uh, But in our culture, and particularly in the church culture, we tend to distort this meaning of what hospitality means. Um, It could be these things, but it's so much more. And I really like this quote, which is going to be on the screen by Professor Stephen Long from Duke University. And he addresses this distortion that we may have about biblical uh, hospitality, about the, the God's welcome. And uh, this is what he says. He says, it's as if God has been reduced to a friendly character with open arms who meets you at the entrance of the magic kingdom, inviting us to come in and find our individual fulfillment. This kind of Disney World hospitality may make us feel really good, but such feelings are short-lived. That's a great quote. And the next thing, a faithful hospitality will not aim for niceness or a frozen smile, but rather for truthful communion with God and others. And that's the key right there, for a truthful communion with God and others. So I want to submit to you, beloved, that God's welcome, yes, it looks like welcoming strangers and making them friends, making friends uh, your family in Christ. And it's so much more, it's about building God's kingdom. Um, it's not the superficial magic kingdom where everybody's always happy, um, but it's about not a moment of niceness, but it's about a, a kingdom way of living our lives. So God wants to welcome us in his holy presence today, and uh, when we accept God's welcome, we're able to welcome others. So there are two scriptural passages, um, two main uh, narratives that I want to use today Uh, to explore God's welcome. And uh, the first one is going to be in Matthew 25. But before we read it, I I do want to say a prayer. And and I'll have a confession, actually, before I even pray. And this confession is that this is Mother's Day weekend, and really, honestly, it it almost passed me by. For some reason, I was thinking it was next weekend. I don't know about you. So it's not too late to say Happy Mother's Day to our, our mothers and Happy Mother's Day to my mom. Um, so it took me by surprise, but you know, I also uh, get a sense that Mother's Day is the time to say to your mother, I love you, and you shouldn't wait for Mother's Day to do that. You should do that every day. Call your mom. Um, but for some, it may uh, conjure up some mixed feelings. And my heart is in particular for, with a family who, who, who lost their mom just maybe not even a week ago. So today might be a, day, uh, a difficult day of grief. And I got to thinking, there's some who are grieving their mother and maybe grieving motherhood. And we want to acknowledge that there are mothers as well, mothers in Israel, as it were, who mother us. And, you know, there's a passage in the Bible that's very familiar to you, I'm sure, Matthew 23. Uh, Jesus talks about a mama hen who wants to gather her chicks under her wing, and he calls them with compassion, calls them to him. So whatever your, your uh, situation, you matter to God, and God wants to cover you 
and, 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 and surround you with his compassion. Join me in praying. Lord Jesus, you know, there's been prayers said uh, throughout this service already. But I'd like to add one more. Um, Lord, a prayer of thanksgiving for, for just your word, for the power of your word. And I pray, Lord, uh, for myself that I would be clear in conveying the message that you have for your people. So, Lord, uh, we give you permission to take over. In your name, amen. Amen. So, okay, so let's get into it, all right? So, Matthew 25. I'm not going to read the whole uh, uh, section, but I do invite you to read it later in your, in your devotional. So, if you can stick with me here. Matthew uh, um, chapter 25, uh, towards the end there. And this is what it says in the first few chap- the first few verses, only the first few verses. It says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, we will... Uh, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. The next one. Okay, I guess there's in the next one. All right, let's stop right there. This scene is an amazing scene. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day of judgment. And immediately, it's very clear that there's only two types of people in the judgment day. There are two types of people, and however, these people sound alike. And if you're not used to them, you might get the goats and the sheep confused. They sound alike because they both say, when have we seen you, Jesus? Because further in the text, you know, Jesus uh, says that he's been disguised as the hungry, as... um, uh, the, the naked and those who are in prison, and, and the sheep and the goat, the people at the right side and the left side of, of the king, which we think is Jesus, asks, um, when did we see you? So they sound alike. They seem to be perplexed that they missed Jesus in their lives. And the other thing that's particular about this scene is that um, both groups call uh, Jesus Lord. Now, the main difference when you read the text between what differentiates the goat and the sheep, the main difference, the one thing that stands out between them, uh, those who truly follow Jesus and those who don't, um, those who will live forever in glory and those who will go to hell, the main difference is that one group has extended God's welcome to the least of these. So extending God's welcome has eternal implication, cosmic implication on this great day of reckoning. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about who are the least of these. Um, uh, They're so important to the king, this least of these that that the king identifies with the least of society. Yet there's nothing fun about being the smallest and the least important people in society. And um, it's to be a stranger, it's to be dismissed, it's, to be, it's not to live in the mainstream, but in the margins where you can be easily forgotten and hidden. You know, my mom, um, uh, on the eve of her retirement, my, my mom wasn't able to walk suddenly, and she had to use a, uh, a wheelchair. And she, still to this day, um, when we go on, 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 uh, on, on errands that are going to take a long time, like a long walk. So she uses a wheel- wheelchair. Now, something really weird started happening when she started using a, a wheelchair. 
For example, when we would go to the restaurant, the server would come to our table and then um, they would turn to me and said, say, what would she like to eat? And, you know, after a while, it, it was happening over and over again and I, and I started noticing it and, and directing people to, to speak to mom directly. At the doctor's office, it, it would happen quite a bit. We go to the doctor's office, and then finally the nurse would sit down and, and turn to me and say, so how has she been doing? <laughs> My mom is a fiercely independent person and a very brilliant person who happens to use a wheelchair from time to time. And one time she said, it's like I'm invisible. And it broke my heart. It's like the wheelchair, it was that kind of a cloak of um, invisibility. You know, if you've ever been broken spiritually, um, emotionally, uh, physically, if you've ever had that identity of a patient, whether for a short time or for, uh, in a chronic way, you know what it's like to be the least of these and to be invisible. You know, as I stand here and uh, think about the fourth grade, and I don't remember everything about uh, the fourth grade, but this moment I do remember because it was so rare and it was so jolting that it's seared in my memory. So much so that as I'm standing here, I can actually see the colorful classroom um, of my of my, um, not 10th grade, four, did I say 10th grade? Fourth grade. Did I say fourth grade? Okay. Yeah, I must be hungry. Fourth grade. <laughs> my fourth grade class. And uh, the teacher of that class was, her name was Louise. And, um, you know, in Montreal, we called our elementary teachers by their first name. And I remember Louise as it was yesterday. She was tall, short, dark hair, and very lively. And in that particular session uh, in our fourth grade class, she asked uh, our civil students to get into groups. And I remember being excited about that. And we got into groups. However, there was one little girl, curly brown hair, pink cheeks, who did not go into join the group that she was supposed to. She didn't go into a group, actually. And I think she joined a, a separate group from the one she was assigned. So Louise was like, um, maybe her name was Marise. I, she said, Marise, why didn't you move? And I remember there was a silence at one point. And I felt something was up. Something was coming. I had a feeling of dread. Finally, after some silence, uh, one of the little girls chimed in and said, um, she doesn't want to sit next to Sabine. So I, that was news to me. So when Louise asked her why, and it might have been the same little girl, it might have been another who said, because Sabine is black. It jolted me. Of course, I knew I was black. But, you know, it, it's, it just kind of you know, jolted me. And then right before my eye, that teacher Louise became, in a matter of seconds, it seemed, became pale and then very red. And her eyes were just darting with anger. And she went on a rant. And I guess she was doing that in my defense or in her outrage. But I wanted her to, to stop because suddenly I was in the middle of this, I don't know, this, 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 uh, this controversy, and, and I was in the middle of this infliction of, of shame to my classmate, but I was also absorbing it as if, you know, I was, the, I was somehow the center of this conversation. And the more she spoke about, about how horrible this was, the more I wanted the floor to open up and just swallow me. And for the first time in that classroom, which has been my home classroom, I felt 
like a stranger, like I did not belong. If you've ever been rejected, if you've ever been turned away for the way you, you talk or the look, um, if you've been overlooked, you know what it's like to be or what it means to be the least of these. Well, Jesus identifies himself with the least of these. He identifies himself with the marginalized. And you know what? We are invited to restore um, the dignity of those who are marginalized. But the least of these, this expression, is not just indicating the people far away in the streets beyond the church walls. Ellen White in Desires of Ages has a tremendous comment on this fact. She comments, of course, on, on, in, on Matthew, on the, this term of the least of these. And this is what she says. It's on the screen. She says, Jesus had told his disciples that they were to be hated of all men, to be persecuted and afflicted. Many would be driven from their homes and brought to poverty. Many would be in distress through disease and privation. Many would be cast into prison. But now he, Jesus, assured a special blessing to all who should minister to their brethren. You know, there are people in our midst who have given up lucrative careers and friends and even their family. They've turned their back on their former life to follow Jesus at great cost. There are some who have left financial stability, their comfort zone to follow the conviction of their heart and even a vocation. There are people who stand against what is popular and decide to stand what is right and therefore they stand alone. And they too are in the margins and they need our welcome. This is what Hebrews 13, 1 to 3, and I know you've heard this, this, this text before. First of all, Paul reminds his people, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Then he says, do not forget to show uh, hospitality to the strangers. By, by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And he says, continue to remember those in prison. And I highlighted that, that one, as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Jesus calls us to identify with the marginalized. So when we serve people, we don't serve them from a point of superiority, but we serve in a point of, we're in this, we're in this together. There's something sacred about welcoming the outsider. There's something equally sacred about welcoming each other like Jesus does for us. The only evidence that we are followers of Jesus, the only evidence that the people on the right of the king had is that they welcomed the least of these. The world will know Christ and that we're Christian, that we're Christ followers by our love. And our love looks like a welcome. I want to address the second narrative for this morning, the narrative, the second biblical narrative, and this one is from Luke chapter 10. I want to turn there because we've seen a list of what it looks like um, uh, to serve, uh, to be, uh, to have Jesus as our Lord. And um, the second narrative is about, I, I believe, God's welcome, but there's no checklist. There's only a story. Jesus started... Um, to tell a story when, in Luke 10, verse 25, actually, let me go ahead and read it, okay, just to familiarize yourself again with the story. It says in Luke 10 that on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. You know, when it said um, um, expert of the law, 
I don't, I don't know why, but I think of a young person, a, a young whippersnapper, that's kind of arrogant. That's my, my mental picture. I'm not sure if it's correct. But um, that means that this person was, was very versed in the law, of course, in the word of God. This was a super rabbi, a super Pharisee, okay? And he's testing Jesus. So he says, this lawyer, they call him, um, says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus answers with a question, and the lawyer is quite used to that, right? Because that's how educated people were educated, but, you know, the question and answer method. And um, so he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, um, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, of course, Jesus says you've answered correctly. But the word continues. It says that this lawyer wanted to justify himself. You know, I think he wanted to show he was in control. He was justifying himself. So he asks Jesus, he's not done, he says, um, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with the story I mentioned earlier. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, of robbers many of them, they stripped him uh, um, of his clothes, beat him, and went away and left him half dead. Now, right at the beginning of this story, there's something wrong with it. You know, as, as, as people are listening to this story, um, they're listening to this man who's going up on the road to, to, to Jericho. And I remember learning, I remember studying that that road was really dangerous. So before coming here, I just checked it real quick to confirm that. And it was very dangerous. So people who are listening to this story are saying to themselves, well, that's pretty dumb. I mean, what was he doing going on that road? And yep, as you would know it, he was attacked and of course he was robbed. So in that story, it continues on. I'm just going to summarize it for us. Um, so the priest comes by, and then the, the Levite comes by. Now note that the priest and the Levite are colleagues. I mean, it's a story, but are, these are people that the young lawyer can identify with. These are his peers, and his peers go by the Samaritan. They saw him down the road, eating, you know, but they keep walking on by. And then comes the Samaritan. Now, Put yourself in the place of the hearers of this story to see how shocking it is. Now, most of you are, are Bible scholars and you know about the long-standing historical hatred, deep-seated hatred between uh, the Samaritan and the Jewish people. So the Samaritan enters the scene of this story. And um, so the audience is probably thinking, okay, we know how this story is going to go. You know, the Samaritan is going to finish him off. <laughs> but the Samaritan doesn't finish him off, this victim. Instead, he helps the victim. Instead, he binds um, uh, his wounds, pours oil on him, cleans him up, and puts him on his own donkey to take him uh, to a motel. You know, remember I said that biblical hospitality is, is disruptive oftentimes in the Word of God? It's disruptive. It's risky. It's always divine. This uh, Samaritan, this merciful Samaritan, was risking his life, right? What if the robbers came back? He has this Jewish person on his donkey. What if uh, another Samaritan came by? And then he would be a traitor trying to help the other side. What if a Jewish person came by? Oh, wow, it's a kidnap in progress. And maybe they would have killed him. So he was taking, he was, um, uh, uh, it was a risk what he did. So you know, a story, you know, he takes him to an inn and, and he makes sure that innkeeper uh, uh, gives him extra money to make sure he's taken care of. And 
Beyond that, we don't know what happens at the, the end of the story. You know what I mean? So what happened to, to this man? Did he heal well? And when he did, did he, did he pay it forward? Did he go find a Samaritan and say, uh, thank you? We don't know how the story actually ends because the ending is left up to this lawyer and it's left up to you and me. Now in verse 36 of Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus asks, um, so which one of those three were the neighbor? So that lawyer, and I keep thinking young lawyer, but um, in a sense, Jesus was asking, which one extended God's welcome? So the lawyer uh, has, to, um, has to admit, he says, the one who showed him mercy. He doesn't say Samaritan, mind you, but he has just admitted it. An enemy was the savior in this story. You know, through the story of the merciful Samaritan, um, what if Jesus was revealing something remarkable to this lawyer? What if he was telling him, if you want eternal life, you have to allow me to welcome you? What if he was telling this, this lawyer, you don't have it all together, Mr. Expert of the Law? You are a man bleeding on the side of the road with uh, naked and maybe thirsty and sick and forgotten. Even if you were foolish to take the unsafe road, someone came for you and risked everything to save you. Romans 5, 7 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet God's enemy, he died for us. God wants to welcome you and me. And, allow, and so what would happen if we allowed ourselves to be overwhelmed by God's mercy towards us? And when Deuteronomy 10, 7, 19 says, um, and you are to, the, to love uh, those who are foreigners because you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. When it says that, what it means is that we are in this together. You know, we're uh, one stranger calling another stranger, traveling on this strange world and pointing and saying, let's uh, turn to Jesus for our way home. You know, Elizabeth Newman, who wrote a book called uh, Untamed Hospitality, it's a classic book, and in fact, I couldn't, I couldn't find it uh, a few weeks ago, so I decided to get another copy. But I, I do love this quote. It, she says, we're called to practice a hospitality that is not our achievement. Did you hear that? We are called to practice a hospitality that is not our achievement, having the home in order, providing entertainment and the like. But rather, it is a gift of the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church and the world. God's hospitality, the, the power and the humility to welcome someone who is different in us, who's not in our uh, line of vision, um, is a gift from God for the sake of building God's kingdom. I, a couple weeks ago, I was folding some blankets. I had just cleaned some fresh blankets, and um, I had washed three or four just in case uh, I might have some guests coming. And, um, and, you know, while I was doing that, it hit me that though my mom, though mom taught me or taught us how to be good hostesses and receive people well, uh, this idea of the blanket uh, hadn't come from her. And I said, hmm. And I remembered um, where I picked up the habit. In hyperspace, 15 years uh, before that, there's a group of us at Evangeline's, Evangeline's house, you know, the lady I mentioned to you who, who cooks Indian food. Um, 
so we're at her house, and um, she made a great meal for us. With some, maybe, there might have been some students there. There might be some, uh, some staff there. And um, so after that, after, as it often happens, after a really big meal, uh, we just sat around talking, and some even fell asleep on the floor. And at one point, I was sitting in the chair uh, by the window where I had um, fallen asleep, and I woke up. And when I woke up, there was a blanket over me. She had uh, taken some throws and some blankets and had, you know, laid it on, on, on us. And I just wrapped myself in that blanket. And I realized, as I was thinking about that time, that Evangeline's gracious gesture had stayed with me and that left with me a legacy of her welcome. Now, I can't cook Indian um, food uh, or one well, practicing but, um, but I could wrap up my, get, my guests, though, in blankets. Now, if a, if a humble woman's welcome can have that effect on another, imagine what can happen when we allow God's mercy to cover us, to wrap us up, and overwhelm us. What difference does it make to call Jesus Lord? When Jesus is our loving Lord, we are free to welcome the other, because everything we have is because of God. You know, when we call Jesus Lord, we're not afraid to, to lose our resources or to use our resource for the good of the other, because anything that we might lose in the process of serving the Lord, the Lord will bless us with much, much more. What difference does it make to call Jesus our rescuer? You welcome someone in your home. Um, well, you, know, you don't care if your, your place is not that fancy. Or if you go to somebody's house and you bring your, your dish and the food doesn't quite look like what it was supposed to from the recipe book, that's okay. <laughs> because you're free to welcome the other person because your self-esteem is anchored on God's opinion of you. You are worth saving. I'm going to read the passage again, you know, of Ma- in Matthew uh, 25. In Matthew 25, it's going to be on the screen again. Um, the whole thing is, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Amen. Amen.